vine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of our Lord. May he add his blessing to it. Let's be seated. Let me pray one more time. Holy God, we thank you that in your providence, this is the passage of scripture which you have ordained for each ear to hear this morning, for each heart to attend to. And Father, we pray that, that you would work powerfully by your word and your spirit. Lord, that, that your word would accomplish that which it has been ordained to accomplish. Lord, that by the sword of your spirit, Lord, you would lay bare our hearts before you, that you would expose the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, Lord, and that you would enable us to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Lord, we pray that, that through the strengthening of your word, by our abiding in your word and in prayer, Lord, that we would bear much fruit and so prove to be your disciples, and that your joy may be in us, Lord Jesus, and our joy may be full. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're now coming to an end of our study of John 15, 1 to 11. It started off as a, as a one-week journey, and it's now extended over, over two more weeks. And we're here right in the middle of John, of John 13 to 16 with, with Jesus' final instructions for his disciples. He had just told them that one of them was going to betray him. He just told them that Peter was going to deny him. And worse yet, he had just told them that he was going to leave them. Of course, they, they, were, they were anxious in their hearts. They were scared, they were discouraged, they were confused. But Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that what was coming was even worse, and so he, he, he wanted to comfort them. He knew that they were going to be facing many trials in the coming days. He knew that, knew that, that not just Peter, but they would all flee from him. He knows that they would witness his, his crucifixion, and he knows that, that they would then go on to suffer their own severe persecution. And so he comforts them. But as I said before, it's not with a, with a mere there, there, or an, an it'll be all right, but he comforts them by preaching the truth to them. He comforts them by telling them to abide in him. And then they will bear fruit for the glory of God and that he will give them his peace and he will give them his joy. And last week we focused on Verse 7, where Jesus said, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We abide in Jesus through his word and in prayer. And the only way that we will survive in this world is through being connected to our lifeline through God's word and through prayer. When I was in Australia, a youth pastor from Saddleback Church came to speak at my church. 
And he spoke to those who were troubled by their lack of Bible study and prayer and said that their devotional time could simply be good morning, Lord, when they woke up. I was dumbfounded. Talk about microwave Christianity. Good morning, Lord. You will never find peace through the trials and temptations for your life if your devotional time is a quick good morning, Lord. I was reminded of the false prophets and priests from Jeremiah 6.14 who healed the wound of God's people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. If you aren't spending ample time in God's word and in prayer, you will be troubled. You had better be troubled. But I know even in my life, far too often, I viewed my own personal devotions as a box to check off. Once I've spent my time in prayer and spent some time in the word, that I can go and do what I really want to do. And I, and I addressed this last week, and, and as I explained, that the, I, I don't think there's anybody in this room who was more convicted over this than me. But if you are satisfied with this kind of superficial spirituality, it points to a serious spiritual problem. Your relationship with Jesus will be superficial if you have this kind of attitude towards the means of grace that God has given us in order to help us to abide in him. That kind of superficial relationship will never bear fruit for God's glory. And if that's what you were living out, you'd better prepare for pruning. But the alternative is even worse. Maybe you need to not just be prepared for pruning, but for being cut off. Because a lack of a desire for these things may demonstrate that you are not truly regenerate. There are two kinds of people in this church, living branches and lifeless twigs. And we can look the same for a time. We can really look like we're actually living a life that's abiding in Jesus. We can say all the right things. But the reality will become evident when you walk with one another. John MacArthur says that, that a person can be a branch truly abiding in Christ. He can be a real Christian, or he can be a branch that's not for real, that's temporary, that's fruitless, that is not continuing with his love, not obeying his commandments on a continual basis, and ends up in ultimate and eternal disaster. So as you sit here this morning, are you a living branch or a lifeless twig? Are you a living branch or a lifeless twig? We all need to be honest with ourselves before the Lord and answer this question. This is the ultimate question. This is the question on which everything else hangs. So, so what, what does it mean to abide? Jesus says here again and again that, that we are to abide, but, but what does he mean? Remember J.C. Rao's definition of abiding, where he says, Abide in me, cling to me, stick fast to me, live the life of close and intimate communion with me, get nearer and nearer to me, roll every burden on me, cast your whole weight on me, never let go your hold on me for a moment. That is what it means to abide, to realize. To realize that without Christ, you have nothing. Without Christ, you have nothing. Whatever it is that you are leaning on that is not Christ, it will ultimately destroy you unless you turn from it. We tend to be legalists, all of us. We, we tend to want to just to view Christianity as a set of rules. There'd be a temptation even with, with a sermon like this. As I talk about spiritual fruit, you can, you can try to, to live out and try to do those things. But if it's not through abiding in Christ, 
It's a stench in God's nostrils. It is rebellion against God. But when you're doing what J.C. Ryle was talking about, when, when you're abiding in that way, when, when you are, are living in close communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're relying on Him for everything, when, when, you, when you know that, that you are desperate for His grace, when, when you know that without Him you can do nothing, you will bear fruit. You will bear much fruit. But that's not all. Your fruit will actually help you to abide. It will also produce joy. It will produce Christ's joy abiding in you. And that's what I'd like for us to consider this morning. We're going to look at fruit bearing from verses 8 to 11 and joy abiding. Sorry, from, uh, fruit bearing from verses 8 to 10 and then joy abiding in verse 11. So Jesus begins here in in verse 8 by saying, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the words of Jesus abide in you and you abide in relationship with him through prayer, you will bear fruit and God will be glorified. Now, normally we see in, in, in John's gospel that it is, it is the Father who is glorified in the Son. But now we see that God is glorified in disciples, in those who abide in the Son. True disciples will bear fruit, and not just some fruit. They will bear much fruit. Okay, so what does Jesus mean here when he speaks of fruit? Let's talk about what he's not talking about. He's not talking about much wealth. He's not talking about many kids. He's not talking about many converts. He's not talking about anything that the world sees as fruit. Jesus has a completely different idea of what fruit is. Turn with me in your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 6. And we touched on this a few weeks ago. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Here in the, in the Sermon on the, on the Plain, which, which has many parallels to the Sermon on the Mount from, from Matthew, 5, yeah, Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus says here in Luke 6, 43, For no tree, good tree bears bad fruit, Again, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Let me say that again. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Good fruit equals regenerate heart. Bad fruit equals dead heart. It's the same thing in Galatians 5, verses 16 to 24. Turn with me there, please. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 24. Here Paul is is contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. There's, There's a war going on here. The war is between the flesh and the Spirit. And so he lists there, he lists the the works of the flesh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, strife, and so on. They are the works of the flesh, and they are the outflow of an unregenerate heart. But on the other hand, the life of the believer will be characterized by love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control because the Holy Spirit has taken out from them the heart of stone and has given them a heart of flesh. It's never a behavior issue. The behavior is the symptom. The issue is the heart. Without a changed heart, your behavior will never change. But when the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart, he grafts you into Jesus Christ. He grafts you into the vine. And so you'll you'll bear the fruit of the Spirit because the life of Jesus is flowing from the vine into the true branches. And you will do increasingly what Jesus did perfectly. You'll do increasingly what Jesus did perfectly. If you are a true disciple, you are demonstrating that you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. But so often we we get it backwards, don't we? So often we, 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 we see bad fruit and we, and we should be aware of, and we should know the difference between good fruit and bad fruit. And if you want to know it, you've got to look at your word. But so often we, we try to, to, to change the fruit. We might even be trying to, to maybe we're trying to change the fruit in our, in our children or in our spouse or even in ourselves. But it's a heart issue. A couple of weeks ago, when Ted Tripp was at Grace Baptist Church, he told a story about an apple tree that he had in his backyard. And and you may have read it. I think the story is also there in in Shepherding a Child's Heart. But he he talked about this this apple tree that he had in his backyard that every year would produce nothing but, but shriveled up, flowery, useless apples. And he explained how he, he, would, he, try, he would try everything. He'd try aerating the soil. He tried, he tried fertilizing it. But he could do nothing to get this apple tree to bear good apples. So he says that he would say to his wife, Honey, I'm going to fix the apple tree. And we go to the market and buy a bushel of, of bright, shiny, red, delicious apples. And he would polish them up. And he would, he would get a ladder and he would, he would go out with this bushel of, of beautiful apples out to this apple tree. He said he, he would take monofilament line and, and tie apples onto this tree. He said his wife would look out the window at him wondering what he is doing. But then he would come back and say, honey, I fixed the tree. Look at the fruit. So often we are like that. Whenever we try to fix the fruit without dealing with the fundamental problem, we are just as foolish as those who would staple good apples on an unfruitful tree. We try to change behavior while ignoring the heart. Parents, you cannot get your kids to change by expecting them to obey a bunch of external rules. They may change their behavior for a little while. They may change their behavior for a little while, but what is going to happen as soon as they get out from under your direct supervision? You can try to protect them. And you should try to protect them. But they're just going to revert to their natural state. You can give Christians a list of things that they should do. I can give you a list of of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, mercy, self-control, and say, do that. Do that. And you should do that. But without a changed heart, it's legalism. It's legalism. 
you might even be trying to change your outward behavior too. Maybe you, you, you see the bad fruit in your life, and maybe you even really don't like the bad fruit in your life, but you try to change it without addressing the heart. Whenever you, you adhere to a certain checklist, whether it's a biblical or an extra-biblical checklist, it, it's, it's irrelevant. We should be going to, and relying on God's word, and, and anything beyond that is shameful. But it's, it's of no avail if you're not dealing with your heart. I saw this years ago when I was a new Christian and, and was involved in, in a group called Narcotics Anonymous. I think I've used this illustration before, but, but I saw a lot of people who were practicing the 12 steps and, and for a season were actually having some victory over, over drugs and alcohol. What was happening is their sin was, was popping up in other areas, and some were, were, for lack of a better word, addicted to, to illicit relationships or addicted to gambling or addicted to work. But because they had never dealt with the heart issue, it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You whack one sin down, and another one pops up, and you whack it, and you furiously you are trying to whack down the sin in your life, but unless you unplug the machine, it's never going to stop. It's never going to stop. You cannot change your behavior and expect God to be pleased with that. It has to happen from a heart that loves Jesus and is relying on the gospel, on what Christ has done for us on the cross of his righteousness given to us. And that's it. That's it. Anything beyond that is a false gospel. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But this is invariably what happens when we focus on the fruit. Whenever we focus on the fruit, we are creating legalism. Legalism. But don't get me wrong, the fruit is important. To a degree, you do need to be aware of the fruit. Look at the end of verse 8. And so prove to be my disciples. Beloved, much fruit doesn't make you a disciple. It shows that you are a disciple. The fruit reveals whether you are a living branch or a lifeless twig. The fruit is important, but the fruit is not the goal. Glorifying God is the goal. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's for the glory of God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says essentially the same thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. True disciples strive to do everything in the name of Jesus because they know that they can't do anything without Jesus. Remember John 15.5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So when we do what Jesus did, we thank the Father because he is the one who has given us to Christ, and Christ is the one who has enabled us to do this, and God gets the glory. God gets the glory. When, when God took me from being a, a drug-addicted dropkick and changed my heart 
from a rebel against God to being a worshiper of God. Who gets the glory for that? God gets the glory. I don't want the glory. And if ever I want the glory, it's, it's, it's sinful. It's an abomination. We talked about this as well a couple of weeks ago. When, when, when we who are in Christ receive our crown, what do we do with our crowns? We cast them at the feet of Jesus. We cast them at the feet of Jesus because he is the one who has done it. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And in verses 9 and 10, Jesus presents his relationship with the Father as the paradigm for the relationship of the Son with his disciples. The Father's love for the Son is reflected in the Son's love for us. This abiding relationship. Think about this. This is one of the most beautiful sentences in Scripture. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Think about the love that the Father has for the Son. It's perfect love. It's eternal love. It's a love that is so profound that even though we will have all of eternity to marvel at this, we will never be able to plumb the depths of the, of the love relationship between the Trinity. But now consider this. Brothers and sisters, that is the same love that Jesus has for us. The same love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that Jesus has for us. When Jesus was hanging on that cross the next day, he wasn't doing that for the nameless, faithless, faceless humanity, most of whom would reject him. He was doing that for his beloved bride. He was suffering for you. He was suffering for you. Consider again the words of the hymn that we sang this morning, The Love of God. The last verse of this hymn was, was discovered penciled on the wall of a cell in an insane asylum after its resident had died. The man who wrote them was said to be insane. But if he understood this truth, I think he was more sane than most people who walked the planet. He said, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's a love that I want to abide in. Brothers and sisters, abide in the love of Jesus. Live in it. Consider afresh how much Jesus loves you. that he would bear your sin on a cruel Roman cross, that he would bear not just the physical torture, but that he would, would bear the wrath of his Holy Father for you. And that he would even endure separation from his Heavenly Father for the first time time in all of eternity for the only time in all of eternity there was a break within the Godhead and Jesus did that for you and for me think about that love let this truth wash over you meditate on it feed on it let it be the focus of your heart it will change your life
For those of you who are here who, who are not born again, who are lifeless twigs, think about the depth of that love. And think about the fact that you are right now an enemy of that love. That you are an enemy of that God. That with your very next breath, you're rebelling against a holy God. And turn to him with a heart of repentance and faith unto salvation, and you too will experience that love. And you'll experience it not just in heaven. You can experience it today. Today. But this love is a two-way street. Because now in verse 10, Jesus presents his obedience to the Father as the paradigm for our obedience to the Son. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Think about the obedience of the Son to the Father. Every second of every minute of every day, every action, every word, and every thought was obedience to the Father out of love for the Father. He's the only one in all of history who has ever loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. He's the only one who has ever loved his neighbor as himself. And that loving obedience is the standard for our obedience. Christ's perfect standard. Christ's standard, not man's standard. Again, think about how quickly we resort to a set of, of rules and regulations as though that was the standard. Can you think of anybody in the Bible who did that? The Pharisees. Jesus had a few things to say to the Pharisees. But Christ is not only the perfect standard. Because he kept the perfect standard, we can have a relationship with God, with a holy God. If you understand the gospel, you understand that you need the gospel every bit as much today as you did on the day that you were saved the day that you were first saved, we're still sinners. We still fall short. We still need Jesus. Cast yourself on him. But Jesus is, is saying here that our, the, our obedience to him is a necessary ingredient of our abiding in his love. He says our obedience is essential for abiding in him. But think about this logically for a minute. We can only obey if we are abiding. Jesus has already proved that 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 this is that we need to abide in him in order to bear fruit. So we're not doing this in, try to, in, in order to try to earn favor with God. We do this because we have found favor with God. Because his strength is flowing in us. He's empowering us to obey. But we have to obey. Paul spoke in Romans of those who say that, that well, if, if grace abounds, the more we sin, then why not, why not sin more that grace may abound more? 
And Paul shuts this down with the strongest of terms. Remember John 14, 15, where Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But this isn't an imperative, it's an indicative. It's not a command, it's a promise. If you abide in the love of Jesus, you will abide in the commandments of Jesus. R.C. Sproul says that here Jesus deepened John 14, 15 by saying, because I love you and have chosen you out of the world and brought you to myself, you will be faithful, you will be obedient. And he says the essence of Christian theology is grace. And the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. Let me say that again. The essence of Christian theology is grace. And the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. We are not driven to obey Christ in order to get in good with him. We are driven to obey Christ with a heart that is filled with gratitude for the way that he has plucked us out of the world and has poured out his love on us. Now this type of obedience that's reflected in the lives of true disciples is not a fleeting, occasional obedience. This is a growing obedience. As God works in our hearts to will and to work according to his good pleasure, as we are progressively sanctified or shaped into the image of Christ. Years ago when I was a Boy Scout, we are told to do a good deed every day. The stereotypical picture is of a Boy Scout helping an elderly lady across the street. And we're actually given a little token that we were to put in our right pocket. Anybody here been a Boy Scout? Do you, was I the only one? You're given a, a token to put in your right pocket. And then once you've done your good, feet, good deed for the day, you can then transfer the token into your left pocket. Actually, it's probably the other way around. Left pocket to right pocket. But how many of us act like that? That we can just do our good deed. We treat good deeds in the same way that, that we treat perfunctory prayers and, and dutiful Bible study. Do you ever feel like that you've done your good deed for the day and then you can rest in that? Maybe some people here even thinking about a good deed that they did 20 years ago. And think that they can abide in that. But the type of obedience that is lived out by believers is a type of life that is characterized by a heart that loves the commandments of Jesus and strives to keep them in the strength of that he provides. Think about 1 John 5, verses 2 to 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We'll be singing that hymn later on. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Those, whose faith in, in, those who have faith in Jesus will overcome the world. But they'll not just overcome the world, they'll also overcome the flesh and the devil too. But see there in, in 1 John 5, uh, verse 3, obedience is not a burden. His commandments are not a burden. It's a delight. Obedience is a delight for the Christian. There's a great joy in knowing that God loves you and knowing that you are walking in ways that please him. Think about the times that, that you have, have been walking in, the, in, in falling to the temptation of besetting sin. When, you, when, when you've been forgetting the love of God for you in Christ, in those times when you're not abiding, when you're walking in dejection and depression, when you're walking in rebellion, the times when you're walking your own ways. And maybe that describes some of you here right now. 
why would you forsake the fountain of living waters for the putrid swamp of your own homemade well? Why choose the pleasures of sin for a season over the joy of abiding love? If you're able to just take a step back from your life for a moment, just to think about how easily you and I, but I want each of us individually to think about this for a moment. How easily do you go to the things of this world, to the pleasures of the flesh, for your joy? And ask yourself, does it last? Is there there a real abiding joy in any of those things? When, when we go to the, when we are tempted by the devil and we, and, and we then and we su- submit to him instead of to God and then he turns from being our tempter to being our accuser. Is there any joy in that? Why would you choose anything above the joy of Christ? In verse 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's quickly consider here abiding joy. Jesus wrote these things to his first disciples so that no matter what happened, even though he had to leave them, even though they would witness his crucifixion, even though they would sin grievously against him by rejecting him in the midst of his suffering, even though they would face their own horrific persecution, in the midst of all of those things, they could be joyful. Are you facing a trial right now? Are you suffering of course, it's not to the degree that the, that the disciples suffer, but maybe it feels like it. Are you joyful? Are you joyful? Now, I am not talking about happiness here. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. It, happiness is based on what happens. To be happy in the midst of the, of what the, tri, of the trials that the disciples faced would be insane. Imagine being happy while they're being stoned or burned at the stake. To be happy in the midst of what some of you are facing right now would be equally insane. Imagine singing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands in the midst of family difficulties or financial struggles or health concerns. It would be insane. But joy is night and day different from happiness. Joy is a deep-rooted trust and contentment that transcends your circumstances. It goes beyond your circumstances. The first book that I ever preached when I, when I came to this church as preaching pastor was Philippians. Philippians is, is often called the epistle of joy. Paul uses the term joy 11 times in that one little book. But now think about the Apostle Paul's circumstances when he wrote that letter. He wrote it when he was imprisoned by the Romans and was facing possible death. But he was able to be joyful. He was able to teach others how to be joyful. You know, I've seen that joy in many of you you, as you have walked through circumstances that would make most people shudder. And I've experienced this in my own life. When Jane and I walked through a miscarriage, it was one of the hardest things that we've ever been through. But even in that moment, even as we were holding each other and crying, there was a peace that that I can't even describe to you. It was a deep-seated trust 
in our Heavenly Father. Jane experienced the same thing. Through it all, we knew that our God is sovereign and loving and wise and that He can be trusted. How do you explain that? How do you explain joy in the midst of trials? Joy is not something that you can just drum up by yourself. You can't grit your teeth and make yourself be joyful. You can't will yourself to be joyful. So where do you get it? Where do you get that joy? First of all, you find it in God's word. Look, look again at John 15, 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken to you. Jesus said these things so that his disciples could have joy. Jesus said these things so that we can have joy. Beloved, if, if the knowledge that Jesus loves us with the same joy that the Father has for the Son, if that doesn't give you joy, nothing can. Nothing can. Because our joy is grounded in the gospel. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Fellow Christians, God loves you in Christ. Christ loves you with the perfect holy love that the Father has for the Son. But maybe some people here are legitimately in Christ, genuinely born-again Christians, but they are not experiencing joy. If that describes you, stop listening to yourself. Stop listening to yourself. Your flesh is telling you lies. The devil is telling you lies. Stop listening. Stop listening. Stop listening and start preaching to yourself. On family night at the Blacks last week, we talked about the weapons of a warfare from 2 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 6. The weapons of a warfare are not of the flesh. They are spiritual. Our weapons are the word of God and prayer. Use these weapons. Become skilled in the use of these weapons because by these weapons we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And that's not just the things that other people say and think. That's the things that we say and think. I talked about how in Psalm 116, verse 7, the, the psalmist writes, David writes, Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Preach rest to yourself. Preach it to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Proclaim the glories of Christ's love for you to yourself. Take every thought captive. But God's word is not the only place where we get this. We also get this from the Holy Spirit. Joy is listed there in Galatians 5 as being fruit of the Spirit. Now, we talked about this before. It's, it, it, the fruit of the Spirit is not just a checklist. It's singular fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's, it's all the fruit of the Spirit. And those who, are, who have the Holy Spirit, those who are born again, have that joy. We have it. We've been given it by, by God as a gift. And, and when, we, when we, we study God's word and when we pray, when we're abiding in Christ, 
when walking in obedience to him. That joy is a natural outflow. But you see here that it's not our joy. This is what we talk about in, in a theological sense. We talk about, about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It's also referred as an alien righteousness. Not as in it comes from Mars. It, it comes from outside of us. It's an alien righteousness. God has given it to us. It's, it's the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. But what Jesus says here is that my joy may be in you. This is the imputation of Christ's joy. He's already promised in John 14, he's promised peace. His peace as our inheritance. And now he's saying that he is giving us his joy. So as we close, I want to ask the question again. Are you a living branch or are you a lifeless twig? We all have to be honest with ourselves here. We have to examine ourselves by God's word. Ask yourself, am I bearing much fruit for the glory of God? Is the joy of Jesus evident in my life no matter what circumstances I'm currently facing? This is the evidence. By this you will know. And so what are you going to do about it? Maybe some of, some of us here have been convicted and, and realize they know that they're not truly born again. Turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and abide in his love. But it's really the same answer for us who are also in Jesus. We continually need to turn to Jesus and with a heart of repentance and faith. Yes, we, we are abiding positionally, but maybe experientially. You're not abiding. So you're not bearing much fruit for the glory of God. Confess this to the Lord. Confess it as sin. Confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together.